Hey coders, welcome to the Scrimba podcast. This is a career focused podcast where every Tuesday I talk with inspiring developers to learn how they found success and how you and other aspiring developers can too. Now, I once heard that the best way to succeed at a job interview is to have them know who you are before you walk through the door. Now, early on in your career, you're not going to be immediately recognizable. In fact, aiming for that would be a big distraction. But what I think is that you will benefit from having open source work, blog posts, and a social media presence on LinkedIn, for example. Now, companies can get a sense for your technical chops and dedication to always learning and improving before you walk through the door, almost greasing the wheels once you get there. And this is especially true for self-taught developers where you don't have something like a computer science degree to get your foot in the door. This work that you do in public, essentially, could be your ticket to get in. My guest today is Swix, who truly exemplifies working and learning in public such that you increase your opportunities and improve your chance of success. Swix has worked with some companies you probably recognize, like Netlify, Amazon Web Services, and currently Temporal.io. He's also the author of the Coding Career Handbook, a fantastic book for anybody who is aiming to go from being a aspiring code newbie to a hireable junior developer. For that book, which we discussed today, Swix has generously offered a discount code for anybody who listens till the end. So with that said, let's get into it. Hey, Swix, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be on here. Your book is called The Coding Career Handbook, and it covers a broad spectrum of topics. I really was thinking hard about where to focus this interview. You know, you talk about the phases of learning to code from code newbie to job hunting to becoming a senior developer and beyond. I figured a great place to focus today would be on that job hunting part of the coding career. But that begs a question, which is something that a lot of code newbies are probably wondering, when is someone ready to make the transition from code newbie to job hunting? How do they know they're ready to start looking for a job? Oh, I think that you should always keep trying to job hunt. There'll never be a point where you're 100% ready. And if you wait till then, you're probably preventing yourself from finding some really great opportunities that you might be ready for, but you just haven't had no idea. And part of the process of job hunting will give you information on what you need to improve on. Even if you don't make it the first, you know, first few times, first 10 times, you can take the feedback that you get and the questions that you get and go like, okay, these are places that people are really emphasizing and I know I'm weak on and you just need to cross that hurdle. So when are you ready? <laughs> Basically, I think at least for front-end developers, because that's that's what I historically have, have done. And I know that a lot of Scrimba people are front-end. When you can take a project from beginning to end, like shipping a, a site design and cloning that in your favorite framework or a favorite static site generator and pay attention to the details of like figuring out what the box model in CSS is and, <laughs> you know, like all the, all the standard interview questions that you might get. I think that's where, that's where you can start interviewing and then start paying attention to what people want uh, out of you. That's a great benchmark. I like that way of thinking about it a lot. And yeah, you mentioned in your book about cloning open source projects as a great way to learn. And if you can maybe attribute the project you're building to the original one and then build on top of it, that's not only a great learning experience, but obviously something that can help you secure a job. You're a big advocate for learning in public, I think. In fact, there's an entire chapter about it in your book. And I think you also have a free essay, which I'll link to in the show notes. Why is learning in public so important for people who are job hunting? I think that it's a fundamental change to the way that you prove your interests and your skills. 
the traditional job hunt is done through, you know, hey, I need a job now. I'm going to look at the available opportunities on a job board. And then I'm going to try to see if I fit, you know, the criteria that, I, that is offered. I apply. I try to serialize my experience down to a single page resume. By the way, try to do one page. Most people <laughs> don't have patience for more than one page unless you're, you have decades of experience in the industry. Just do one page. And then you hope that the other side has the deserialization algorithm to decode that, hey, you're, you're actually someone worth interviewing. And a lot of people don't even make it past that stage. And then, and then you show up for three to four interviews and hope that you do well enough in that four to five hour window to pass and, and work with them for, you know, hopefully the next uh, few years. And I think that's a very weird funnel or a weird narrow waste in the whole relationship of like your personal growth and the company's view of you. And I think it's just better if you can find a way to broadcast what your interests are, build your skills in public, have people follow along. And when they have something that's suitable for you, they come to you instead of you come, you going out to them. The business world is very familiar with this. It's called the concept of inbound marketing rather than outbound. By creating content, by sharing, these are the things I'm an expert in, you know, or, or you're building expertise in, you're not necessarily an expert yet, but you're just building expertise. And, and as people come across things, they, they think of you because uh, at, at the end of the day, all you need to do is just be first to mind on a particular topic and people will naturally reach out to you. And that opens you up, actually. There's a figure floating around that like 80% of the jobs that are exist out there aren't actually formally advertised first. Like they just get sent out to friends, family, people already in the company. The only way you get those kinds of opportunities is by having some sort of reputation and learning in public is the best way to achieve that. The other thing that I think is underappreciated by people, people are very scared of like, oh, like what if my mistakes are out there and people think that I'm an idiot and I'm, I'm exposed. Everyone's been where you have been. Like <laughs> you're not special in that way that you're especially bad at this. <laughs> Everyone started out somewhere. As long as you show the capability of growth, uh, that's actually an even better quality than just coming out of the womb, knowing everything. So so I think some amount of humility and, and being able to divorce your identity from your work, like when, when people criticize your work or when you can step back and look at your password and say like, okay, it was bad for these reasons. That's how you know you've grown as a professional, as an individual. And finally, I think that the feedback loop involved in learning in public is very important to me in the sense that I will try my best to ship by a certain deadline, but I will ship so that I get feedback from other people and that feedback fuels the next thing. And that helps you break the loop of just continually working on a side project and never shipping, which is a very familiar experience with a lot of developers. You, sh you try to reject perfectionism in favor of shipping and doing your best and then iterating what after you've shipped based on the feedback that you get from other people. And people are, are incentivized because you respond to them and, and if you are shown to be a good collaborator, um, then they will work with you in future projects as well. But also once you've got, gotten something wrong in public, you'll never get it wrong again because it's so embarrassing. So learning in public isn't this like altruistic thing where you're trying to help other people. It can actually be like quite a competitive advantage. And you mentioned two types of feedback loops, which I think are worth highlighting. The first is when you apply to jobs, when you're barely or not quite ready, instead of guessing where you need to improve, you can actually take their advice on board and apply it directly. But also when you're learning in public or showing your work is another way of describing it. There's a great book about that, I think, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes too. You are inviting people to give you feedback. Absolutely. I think uh, the feedback loops are a key part of how I work. And it's, it's absolutely not altruism. I think a lot of people, when they say they want to create content or they want to learn in public, they talk about how they want to give back to the community. Like their contribution is such a gift from God. And, uh, it's really not, <laughs> uh, sometimes. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes look, like, uh, your, your, your contributions, as long as they help one person out there, uh, it's very appreciated, right? 
And sometimes it doesn't have to come from an expert because they're, they're so burdened by everything. Sometimes the best communicator of, of that knowledge is someone who just learned it because you can, you can remember how it, how it was like to not have that. You know, how, how often do you repeatedly give to, to charities? Like it's not that much, but you, you invest in yourself a lot more than you, than you invest in charities. And, uh, I'm trying to make the case of like, this is sustainable because it helps you and because it is genuinely the fastest way to learn rather than like you're constantly taking time out of your day to give back to a community that may or may not appreciate it. <laughs> I try to push people away from like measuring themselves by external validators and think of thinking about internal goals as well as a more relationship-based context. The, a lot of the systems that are set up around us, like claps on Medium or like likes on Twitter or like followers on whatever social media, those are very external facing things. And every time you put out something, you might be keen to judge the quality of that by the response that you get. And if you put out a stinker that, that just like completely falls flat, you might stop. So that's a very unsustainable strategy. You need a strategy or personal growth strategy that uh, transcends any, you know, lull in feedback. Uh, obviously, feedback is important and that's how you know you're relevant as well as on the right track. But if you judge yourself by that too much, then you just get tied to the pressures of publication. It's like publish or perish or the content grind as full-time content creators call it. So, so I definitely don't encourage that. I try to encourage more of a relationship-based or intrinsic motivational-based thing. Does it help a key person that you have in mind or does it help you solve something that you've been struggling with for a long time? And if it does that job, that's a more attainable goal because it's more within your control than what a thousand people think of you. I want to come back to this in just a minute because measuring your success when learning in public is actually kind of tricky because if you look at retweets and likes and stuff, it's kind of a vanity metric. It might not actually be helping you towards your objective. But before we do that, I think it would be helpful to talk about some practical, actionable ideas that someone listening can do to start learning in public. The proto prototypical action is to write is to write tutorials, is to write blog posts. Just basically try to write for uh, yourself like three months ago, right? You know, like don't try to establish thought leadership and like publish the great American novel or like break the industry. You'll get there. <laughs> just, uh, just warm up first. As you have that regular writing habit, you figure out the stuff that you're good at and the stuff that other people are interested in. So this is something I call in my book, like the nexus of interest. Understanding where you can be relevant to other people's interests is probably a skill that just needs to be developed over time. If you focus too much on others, then you will be very burnt out because there's nothing internally that's keeping you going. And if you focus too much on yourself, then no one else externally has any incentive to care what you say. So you need to balance it a little bit with with a bit of like your self intersection with others. That's that's not, that's definitely a, a balancing line that uh, sometimes I I miss it and sometimes I really nail it and <laughs> it's it's really wonderful and gratifying when you nail it. Coming up in just a minute, what is a learning exhaust and how can you omit one? Is learning in public altruistic? And does learning in public mean becoming a full-time content creator with not much coding skill, but lots of likes? Learning is best when it's informed by you actually trying to do things, not trying to get likes. Um, and people can really smell when you are just trying to be a full-time influencer. That's coming up. I just wanted to ask if you would do us a favor. If you enjoy the Scrimba podcast, please recommend it to your friends or family. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like, so thanks in advance. 
Coming up next time on the Scrimba podcast, Can't See Dodds joins me to talk about going from zero to 60 in your career as a developer. Everybody is limited on the amount of time that you have, and there's no shortcut to experience. You know, everybody has 24 hours in the day. You have to sleep, hopefully like seven to eight hours of that. Your ability to make that leap from totally beginner to experienced developer is highly dependent on what you do with that time. Like I said, the fact is there's no shortcut to experience. You have to put the time in, but there are different things you can do at that time that can give you a better return on that investment of time. You can look forward to that next Tuesday on the Scrimba podcast. Just make sure you subscribe so you see it in your feed. Back to the interview with Swix. There's one idea in your book, which I think is fascinating, which is this idea of like having a learning exhaust. So as you're learning the things you are intending to learn to get your job or find success, you should be leaving a trail in terms of like, if you learn something, you can maybe tweet for a hundred days of code. Maybe one step further could be to write a tutorial to solidify what you learned. I think it can be tempting for someone to confuse learning to code and learning to public with becoming like a full-time content creator, which maybe five, six, ten years ago it wasn't a full-time job but now there are a lot of people on twitter we look up to whose only job is to create content and when you look at that it can be quite daunting because you're actually trying to to learn to code yeah and it can be pretty empty as well if if all you're doing is trying to get imaginary internet points up on an internet platform learning is best when it's informed by you actually trying to do things not trying to get likes and people can really smell when you are just trying to be a full-time influencer sometimes it works i I think definitely uh the numbers will will skew accordingly that way but you are selling yourself out in a, in a certain way and the the people who look for through authenticity will really detect that and ultimately how many people are you really going to work with in your life you know maybe probably under under like 500 you know let's let's call it that right you don't actually need that wide of a base you just need a very strong relationship with high quality people that that you have a really fulfilling time working with so the people who aim for like hundreds of thousands and millions of followers, these are just faceless masses that you'll never meet and they kind of bother you anyway. Like why don't optimize for the lowest common denominator content because uh, they're not going to add materially to your life in any sense. I, I definitely try to correct against this full-time creator bias and, and try to encourage people to work on real projects. Uh, in fact, as much as, my, as I'm known for learning in public, I have another chapter, which people don't talk about, called Learning in Private. And the first thing it says in there is uh, most of the time you should not be learning in public. And that's true because uh, if you're, <laughs> if you're li- like nobody wants to see, you know, you live stream every second of your day, they just want to see the best, the aha moments and the, and the today I learns. Uh, and that you can definitely provide as learning exhaust. I just want to make it as, as automatic as breathing. You don't really think to breathe. Well, now you do, because I just talked about it. Um, but <laughs> but uh, when you learn something, your automatic reaction is to note it down somewhere for yourself, for other people who are following along on your journey. And that's why I talk about in terms of uh, learning exhaust. And this is borrowed from a TED Talk I saw on creative exhaust, which is a similar concept for, for designers and artists. We talked a little bit about like forms of learning in public. So I think blog posts and tweets and, and stuff like that are, are really slow engagement forms. There are four kinds of learning gears this is another concept that, which I talk about in, in, in the book. And that's a very low level gear of exploring, right? Like you're not really committed to any direction yet. And you're just like kind of blogging out as you go along. It's more for yourself than for other people. But if you want, you can kick it up a notch to other gears. Like 
connectors uh, are people who try to connect different domains and to try to connect ideas. So you start putting out more polished pieces of content, like tutorials and cheat sheets and workshops and talks. And these are longer term commitments, you know, on the order of weeks and months, um, where you, you build something that's a lot more polished and a lot more condensed to give real value for people who are coming across the topic for the first time. And that is not something where you're learning as you go. That's something where you sum up everything that you've learned and you present it in a more polished form. And, and that polish actually matters a lot for people who are confused by all the, the nuance and the false starts sometimes. Sometimes you, you think you've learned something, you go down one direction and you're like, oh no, I have to go back. The polish is where you cut off all that, all those false starts and you present a smooth path. Um, just kind of like how Scrimba presents the, the smooth career path, right? Like in reality, it's never as easy or as well-defined as that. But because by defining it for other people, you provide some kind of blessed learning path that other people can at least base their journeys off of. And that's very powerful as well. The highest form or highest gear, which I tend to drive people towards, is this minor gear where you struck gold and you're just you're just sort of digging deeper and deeper into that topic that you know is valuable to other people. Instead of having to put yourself out there, you know, I don't have to show up on podcasts anymore. I don't have to apply to speak at a conference. Like people will come to join you because they believe in your mission. And you are doing something that no one else is doing. So I really look up to people like, uh, you know, the, the builders, like the people who founded Scrim, uh, Per and was his co-founder, <laughs> the people who start open source frameworks like Evan Yu at Vue.js. These are people who are just building their thing and everyone comes out to help them. So it's, it's a form of learning in public that is just very mission driven and no longer very broad. Like you could be doing a thousand other things and you probably could be making more money doing other things too, but you're just so driven and, and so keen on building and making this idea into reality that you just drop everything to do this one thing. I've just drawn a path from like, you know, this uh, extreme breadth, like where you go a mile wide and an inch deep as an explorer. And you can sort of step it up eventually as you, as you narrow in on what you're focused on into a minor where you, where you just have found the thing that you want to be known for, for your entire career and just do that and be that person and be that expert in the world that everyone looks to. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that there are different ways of learning in public for sure. Maybe there's even a middle ground. Like I've seen a lot of GitHub repositories, which are like today I learned or, you know, GitHub cheat sheets or something. This could be a project that you're building, learning while you're building it. And now other people can see it. They jump on board and perhaps there's no clear path and there's no obvious answer. But if you start to look at this broad range of gears, you can start to engage different gears and, and learn in public very effectively. The reason I call it gears is to try kind of have a values neutral thing. It's not that one gear is better than the other. It's just that they're better suited to different slopes that you're on if you're on a, like a very shallow flat slope then yeah go to gear one but if you're on a very steep slope uh then go to gear four so, so uh, do, do, do you drive a manual car <laughs> i did i did learn how to drive a manual car but this is more thinking about bicycles <laughs> oh bicycles yeah fair enough <laughs> um but no i actually so uh, one of my ways to really ramp up on React and TypeScript was that I started my own cheat sheets uh, called the Git uh, React and TypeScript cheat sheets. And, and then that's up on GitHub. And yeah, I, I teach a thousand people a day React and TypeScript uh, from all sorts of places like uh, Uber and Microsoft and Airbnb. Uh, and they've taught me as well, because when they find things that, that were wrong or that were missing, they just PR that in and I learn as a result of the process. Uh, this is a concept that I call open source knowledge, which is yet another chapter where a lot of times we keep our knowledge to ourselves. We, we have our own notes. If we're lucky enough to have notes, a lot of times it's just kept in our heads. But if you open source it and let people contribute, you can grow as a, as a result of everyone who's going through the same notes that you are. So I, I really encourage people to, to try that. Once they're 
comfortable with the with the early blogging phase. There's just so many other forms which are very rewarding to do. And this, there are so many options. Like you just reminded me in a roundabout way about like if you put yourself out there to give a conference talk, for example, even on a subject you know reasonably well, when the reality kicks in that you're about to explain it to tens, if not hundred people, you really double down and reinforce what you've been learning. And and it just helps you understand better. Then you give the presentation, then there are people in the audience who come and ask you questions afterwards. Like all these things enable so many great opportunities in your career. It's so much more effective than just going in the front door, essentially, with a CV that gets passed by an application tracking system or something. The vast majority of people are going to go through the front door and that's okay. <laughs> it's, that's not a problem. Um, but it doesn't hurt. Can you talk about that? Because I've often heard as I've spoke to different experts and different people in the community, some people are very keen on like going broad and say, you know, apply to a bunch of jobs, like find a bunch of companies, send out a bunch of resumes, the dream company you end up working for, you might never have even thought to work for. Other people are like, no, no, don't take the shotgun approach, pull out the sniper, like find a specific job and find a creative way to get in the back door, like engage with the hiring manager on LinkedIn or something or the direct manager. I don't think that there is one best for everyone on earth. So I do think that some people in some situations should go for the shotgun and some others should go for the sniper. I'm definitely personally more on the sniper side, but that doesn't mean that I think that everyone should do that. So, you know, when I came out of my bootcamp, I applied to only nine companies and I got three or four offers and I took one. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you only need one. The problem with, with this idea is that people kind of treat that as a numbers game, you know, air quotes. This is literal what they what they say it's a numbers game so you know if you apply to more companies you have a higher chance of getting one job the problem with that is once you land a job you may not like it as much just because you don't know as as much about the company you're just desperate for any job out there so i think it's better you have a high chance of getting the job if you're less tired from <laughs> flying so much as well as you, you have a strong reason for why you why you want to join so that when they ask you in the interview you have a clear reason instead of like i don't know you're one of 200 companies that i applied to you do need to get your start somewhere. And I will never disrespect that process because th these people uh, put in so much effort to, to do that. And that's what worked for them. I'm not in their shoes. And I don't know if my way would have worked for them. You wrote in your book, your goal is to have fewer companies to apply to, but to have really freaking good reasons for each company because you've done your homework. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's my approach, right? So I definitely uh, have a strong bias towards the focused approach to, to job application. Um, and this is what makes sense to me because I like getting to know the company that I work for and just believing in the work that I do. A job isn't a, just a job to me. You know, a job is, is being part of a bigger story of the company. And the job also plays a bigger part of the story in my own career. Like, does this help me get to somewhere I could see myself being? I'm not just a robot for hire. I'm not, not just like a random code monkey. Um, I want to build some expertise in companies that I believe uh, will do well as well. Uh, but I think many shows with many folks, right? When you get into a career advice industry like, as I have, I think there's some amount of responsibility to acknowledge that your way is not necessarily the only way. And so I, I definitely try to do that. One thing you wrote about in your book, which I found to be very interesting, is about luck and how people can create yes. their own luck. Thank you for tweeting that, by the way. I, I, that's one of my favorite breakthroughs in my in my journey. I love the illustration. And actually, it's something I've believed in for a long time. Like when hard work meets opportunity, great things happen. Like when the opportunity comes, you need to be ready to take it. Like you must have done the preparation, but you also need to have like a positive outlook and attitude to see these things. So this is in the bonus chapter. So when I originally wrote the book, I actually planned out 50 chapters. <laughs> and I realized that that was ridiculous. So I had to cut it down to size. And the, the chapters that I cut out were more about concepts. 
So the book is structured in terms of principles, strategies, and tactics for your career. But some concepts, I think, are just transcendent of all of those things. And this concept of luck is success driven by skill or luck. And this is a very abstract thing. But there is actually a philosophy and a literature of luck, which uh, I think I think is pretty mind mind blowing to people when they first come across it. In a sense that, like, when you look at other people that you know, like some of them are very successful, and you're like, oh, they just got lucky, and then others, like, they seem to work hard and they they get what they they get their just desserts or whatever. What really broke through for me was reading this essay by Mark Andreessen, where he identified the four kinds of luck. And so the first kind is sort of blind luck. You're born with it or you're born without it. And there's nothing you can do about it. So accept your lot in life. It's, it's a lot like privilege, right? So that, there, that, that definitely exists. If, if you believe that that's the only thing that determines your outcomes in life, then you might as well just sit back and you have no free will right? Like, <laughs> what's the point? So the second type of luck is more of an active form of luck. It's this idea that you, the more you do and the more you tell people what you do, uh, the more luck can come to you, right? Because people have a higher chance of knowing about you and, and luckier things have a higher chance of happening to you just because you do more than the average person. You cover more ground, so you're more likely to find gold. The third philosophy, I think, I, I, don't, I don't remember what I, what I called it anymore. I think it's the Alexander Fleming kind of luck where like, you have prepared all your life to look out for, you've primed yourself to look out for key problems. And when lucky things happen to you, you can notice them when the average person would not. Alexander Fleming, when he discovered penicillin, apparently there was nine years of history preceding that. And that was a result of just a lot of prepared luck by having done the research into this to notice that when that freak accident of mold hap uh, happening in his petri dish, showing that it had, it had uh, ways of killing bacteria, he was one of the few people in the world who, who could have noticed that that was something worth investigating and he followed up on it. And then the, the last thing is very similar to the minor learning gear, which is magnetic luck. When you're working on something so compelling that people are drawn to you and luck becomes your destiny. There's very few examples of this just because, uh, you know, you, you have to be very fortunate to find it in, in the first place. But when you have a purpose that other people really believe in and needs to happen, you can find that luck comes to you because, you know, people want to send it your way, essentially. It, it just it just feels like you're you're working on something that... Uh, needs to happen and therefore the universe conspires to help you do it <laughs> absolutely i think if i was to relate that to my personal experience i wanted to be a developer like i wanted to be a great developer and while i was learning to code i made a lot of youtube videos to learn in public like in fact swix the first videos i made i had like one monitor with some code and on the other monitor i was just copying it like glancing at both monitors because i thought that's how you coded i thought you just had to like memorize code and i thought like doing the videos would drill it to memory anyway it stuck and i got a bit better at explaining code and when i then heard a podcast episode about developer advocacy and developer relations i was like oh maybe that's like gonna work for me because i'm already doing some content creation put that in the back of my head and then i was always like talking to people on twitter like like sharing my projects, following people I thought were interesting. And one day this guy tweeted about a job opportunity who I'd like just by chance previously connected with. And so I reached out and took a chance on a little bit of freelance work. And then they invited me to like do a full-time interview much later. But I definitely feel like I could have said like, oh, it's lucky that I'd connected with that person. You know, it's lucky that I saw the tweets because I might've been away that day or something like that. But I really feel like I was maximizing my opportunity by doing all these things. After I left that company, that startup, 
up one of our products was a chat API product. By complete chance, I was on Upwork looking to do some freelance content creation. By the way, for anybody listening, you can get paid $200, $400 per article if you want to create coding tutorials for someone else. I've hired many people to do that and I would like more people to choose from. Like it's definitely worth doing if you don't know already. But I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can make some tutorials. And the first person who replied to me and the only person who replied to me was the founder of a chat API product who wanted to then hire me to come on and do like more marketing stuff. But like, it just seems so serendipitous and so crazy and random. But like, I truly believe that like you can make your own luck by making the most of the opportunities presented to you. And so Swix, to kind of close the episode out, maybe you could tell us a story about one time you felt lucky, but really you made your own luck. I'll talk about what I'm doing now, my day job, which is uh, I'm head of developer experience at temporal.io. It is a very different kind of company that I uh, have historically worked at, you know, I previously worked at Netlify and AWS and Temporal is a microservices orchestration company. And what the hell am I doing there? <laughs> and the, the reality of it is when I worked at Netlify, uh, we were starting to dive a little bit into the serverless space. And I was trying to think about how I could build the apps that I saw out there in this serverless world. And, and that's a very new programming paradigm that people are still trying to get used to. And I realized that we just simply did not have the tools. As much as people are breathless, breathlessly excited about serverless, it's just not as good as the server full world at some of these long running jobs. So I said like, okay, like basically we were promised the promised land of serverless and like people are very excited about it. But the reality of it is that the experience is not as good as uh, what we had before. And and the, the anchor point that I had was DHH, the founder of Rails, um, when he did his Rails demo that, that really changed web development. He did that 15 years ago where he set up a site in 15 minutes with uh, all the server side validation logic. And I said that, Essentially, like we had that 15 years ago. And if you tried to do that now on serverless, you could not do that in the same amount of time. And, and there'll be a lot more heavy debugging that's needed. And where have we gone wrong, essentially? <laughs> so I wrote this blog post that I was very scared to write because I was not qualified to talk about distributed systems. I was not qualified to talk about backend. I was only a front-end developer advocate at the, at the, at the time. But I said, like, hey, there's just something missing in this uh, disconnected microservices and serverless world. What I called it was... Um, reassembling the monolith. Like uh, we, we broke apart the monolith and uh, we, we got scalability as a, as a benefit, but we lost all these things. Like how do we, how do we reconstitute all, all of that stuff? And essentially that started off a debate in the comments. So I was so scared to post this as a blog post. I posted it as a GitHub gist away from my main blog and just said like, this is something I'm thinking about. I don't know. You know, I'm just like, this is something I'm really kind of working through and I'm not ready to post this as a blog post, but I'm going to share it anyway because learning exhaust, right? I shared it and uh, people commented in a GitHub gist. One guy had really strong opinions about that. And one of the VCs was uh, reading through also read his comments and said like, hey, there's a company called Temporal.io that's kind of working on this exact problem. You just, you guys just haven't got there yet. You'll get there after about 10 years of uh, work, <laughs> work experience in this, in this industry. Uh, so they hired him as the head of products for Temporal and he turned around and hired me. And so the long and short of it is that one blog post, one draft blog post turned into two jobs that has resulted in my first sort of management experience ever, uh, broke me out of AWS, which is a very hard decision for me to leave you know, Amazon. But it gave me an opportunity which uh, was not publicly listed. I could never have considered myself qualified for. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a going to be a rocket ship that's going to make me a billionaire. Uh, and also change back-end development, uh, not in the same necessary order. But uh, <laughs> but I think when you write at the edge of your abilities on the most interesting problems, then people who resonate with that will find you. And the opportunities 
associated that will come your way if you want, if you choose to accept it. I could have easily said no to that and just gone on with my, with my regular career path. But I think taking this path and doing this learning public and creating my own luck helps me knock myself into a different career path, which uh, I'm very privileged to, to be in. I don't know what the result of it will be. It could be a massive failure. I check with me in five years. But I, I do think that uh, I have a more interesting life for sure as a result of it. And at the end of the day, that's all you can ask for, right? Swigs, what a wonderful story to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for having me on. This was a great discussion. And thank you for sharing about the book. Uh, it's not an easy book to get through. I'll, I'll grant that. Uh, but I, I had no idea. This is my first time writing something like that. So uh, I'm just grateful for anyone who, who checks it out. And um, I'm grateful for the community that's formed around it. That was Swigs, Head of Developer Experience at Temporal.io and the author of the Coding Career Handbook. As promised, to get 30% of Swix's book, find the link in the show notes and use the code SCRIMBA30. That's SCRIMBA30. No spaces. Coming up next time on the Scrimba podcast, Kent C. Dodds joins me to talk about going from zero to 60 in your career as a developer. That's next Tuesday on the Scrimba podcast. Until then, keep coding. This episode was edited by Jan Osenovic, and I'm your host, Alex Booker. You can follow me on Twitter at BookerCodes, where I share highlights from the podcast and other news by Scrimba. See you next week.